Well, good morning again, City Church Garland. I'm happy to be here this morning. Keith is kind enough to give me this opportunity to to land after a 21-hour journey and to preach a couple days later. So it's a it's a it's always by God's strength. It's always by God's grace, and He just gives you those opportunities to to learn that lesson over and over again. And um, I'm happy to be here this morning. I'll never forget about three years ago, I was being mentored by Pastor Keith uh, during my final year of seminary. And Keith and I met on a weekly basis at City Church International, which is the mother church of City Church Garland. And Keith called me into his office. He wanted to talk about something that had unfortunately just happened uh, that week. And it was uh, regarding a cell phone being stolen from inside our church building. And all signs pointed towards the fact that another church member, a sister in Christ, did in fact steal that cell phone. Uh, Keith watched the uh, video footage uh, from the security cameras. And then we uh, pulled out the Find My iPhone app and were able to see that the stolen cell phone was in fact at the house of the the sister in Christ's house that uh, stole the phone apparently. So Keith and I then began to discuss what do we do as a church when this sort of wrongdoing takes place? What is our role as church leaders? What is our role as congregants in the church when one sister stings another sister's heart in this manner or one brother bruises another brother's heart in this manner? So what would you do? What should we do in these situations uh, that type of situation was not isolated to that one incident in the past. We living in this fallen world, although we are Christians, Martin Luther said, you are simultaneously a saint and a sinner. A saint and a sinner. We are righteous because of Christ's gift of His righteousness by faith, but we still struggle with the flesh. We are still tempted and sometimes we give in to that temptation. So you might find yourself on that end of being tempted to wrong a fellow Christian in Christ. Or you might find yourself having been wronged. These types of things do happen, unfortunately, in this fallen world. Brothers will bruise brothers' hearts. Sisters will sting sisters' hearts. Christians clash. The family of God fights wrongdoings, disputes, these sorts of things will come up. What do we do? How do we handle disputes or clashes between Christians? What does God call us to do as His children in those types of situations? Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul is actually addressing this very issue with the Corinthian church. And if you've read through this letter, you will no doubt have noticed that this was not the only issue the Corinthian church was struggling with. They were full of challenges. But today we're going to look just at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. And in looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, we're going to discuss the capacity, the calling, and the Christ of the church the capacity, the calling, and the Christ of the church in handling Christian clashes, Christian disputes within the community of God that He has appointed you in, no less the community church, no doubt, but also broadly speaking, 
as you interact with other Christians at your workplace or wherever you might be. So our first point is the church's capacity. And this is going to be verses 1 through 6. Follow along. I'm reading from the NIV. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. So our first point, the church's capacity. And in these first six verses, we can hear the tone of the Apostle Paul basically cheering on the church and saying, you can do this. Corinthian church, you can do this. You can work out this dispute internally. But why? What does Paul base this exhortation upon? We see it's clearly based upon a work of God. It's based on the church's profound future reality. Church, we will judge the world. We will even judge angels. We see that in verses 2 where Paul says, The Lord's people will judge the world. And in verse 3, we will judge angels. Now, if we have this capacity that has been given to us for a future act, I believe the passage is also teaching us, based on Paul's, uh, the context of Paul using it in this section, he's saying, you can do this now. God has entrusted you with the utmost responsibility in the future. You can handle disputes now. You can work this out. This is your responsibility, and God's given you the ability to do it. So don't run away from it. And what happens if we do run away from it? What happens if a dispute pops up in the church, and it just seems easier to go to the local courts? Or it seems easier just to gossip about it instead of try to work out this clash? What happens? Paul says it's shameful. It is shameful for the church to settle disputes outside itself in the world. And he says it word for word in verse 5. He says, I say this to shame you. You see, the Corinthian church was taking their issues outside of the church. And Paul says, you're bringing shame not only on yourself, but on the Corinthian church, on your local church. And when you shame the local church, you're also shaming the Savior our daughter, Faith, is only two years old, and she just ran up to the stage, so you got an idea about her maturity. Uh, we, we give her a pass. She's only two. But what we have been able to teach her thus far, we expect her to be able to act out. And one of those things is greeting. In Ethiopia, greetings are highly appreciated, and there's a great expectation that you start training your child from a very young age how to greet. And so we have taught Faith that when she meets somebody new, she sticks out that little hand. Sometimes she does the left, sometimes she does the right. But that little hand goes out, and she says in Amharic, Salamno, which is, are you well? How are you? 
And then once they say, well, Salamnish faith, or Bayamnet, as her name is in Amharic, she's supposed to say, Dinanain, which means I am well. She does this about 50 to 60% of the time, which, which is good for a two-year-old. But could you imagine that if we had taught her this for 18 years of her life, and when she's 18 years old, she's only still properly greeting about 50% of the time? That would bring shame upon her. We have trained her what the culture expects in order for her to have proper relationships, in order to show honor to the people that she's meeting. In essence, Paul had taught the Corinthian church these facts. This was not the first time Paul had taught the Corinthian church, you will judge the world, you will judge angels, you have the ability to handle disputes internally now. You have the wisdom to do this. But we see the Corinthian church acting more like a two-year-old than the maturity that they were supposed to display at that time in their walk. So the church who will judge the world system, including the angels, has the God-given capacity now to wisely settle disputes internally, thus preserving its honor and the Lord's honor in this broken world system that we live in. So why is it shameful, other than the fact that Paul had taught them this truth, other than the fact that they should be striving to work out disputes and clashes and wrongdoings amongst themselves. Why specifically is it shameful? Because God has called the church to be his witness in the world. God has called the church to be his witness in the world. And this moves us to our second point, the church's calling. The church's calling. So in these first six verses... In one sense, Paul is being the church's cheerleader. He's saying, you can do this. You can do this. God has entrusted you with this tremendous responsibility in the future. You can start acting on that now. You're united to Christ, church. You can do this. So we saw that in our first point, the church's capacity. In the second point now, the church is calling. I can almost hear Paul grabbing them by the shirt collar and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Have you forgotten your calling, church? You are to be God's witnesses. What are you doing? We see this hinted at in verse 1. In the Greek, the very first word in that sentence is dare. Now, the Greek uh, syntax and grammar is helpful because oftentimes the most important aspect of a sentence is stated with the first word. We don't so much do that in English. But Paul, in a sense, is saying, How dare you, Corinthian church? How dare you? Your issues are spilling out into the world system. How dare you? You are shaming the name of Christ. You are valuing something more than your calling. We see this also in verse 6. Where Paul says, but instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. He's basically reminding them, you have a calling to be a witness to unbelievers. When they look at you as an individual or as a local body, they need to see the character of God. They need to see love. They also need to see you living out the reality of Christ's finished work on the cross. You need to proclaim that in your actions and your words. They have been called 
and they are not displaying to the broken world God's character. They are not displaying to the broken world Christ's death on the cross. And what's ironic is they're going, the church is going to unbelievers looking for justice. Justice. The world is supposed to be looking to us, the church, for reconciliation. They're looking for, to us for forgiveness. They're, they should be looking to us in regards to the ultimate source of justice. Faith in Christ. The gift of God's righteousness given to you. The church is going to the world system for justice, but the world should be running to the church about God's justice, about God's righteousness. So this is a clear bad picture. This is a clear violation of God's calling. It's clear that the church values something more than their witness. And Paul is correcting them. Paul is shaking them. He is trying to get their attention. So if we settle these disputes outside the church, we've already seen that it's shameful. But in verse 7, Paul takes it a step beyond just shame. He says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Defeat. We see shame. Now we see defeat. How are they defeated? They are forfeiting their privileged position to be God's witness for stuff. They're fighting over stuff. They are giving up their privileged position to be God's witnesses. And Paul says, in essence, they are defeated. What they're saying is, hey, world, we're no different than you. We value what you value. We fight over what you fight over. They are not showing that a relationship with Jesus changes your life from the inside out, changes everything about you. They are saying we are the same. And that is not just shameful. Paul calls that defeat. So if they see this defeat, what's what's the point of them following Jesus? Why would they want to know our Savior? How did it get to this point? How did the church move from shame to defeat? We see it in verse 2 with one simple little word. In verse 2, we see the word trivial. Paul is calling this dispute, he's calling these cases trivial. Now, in the context of this letter, the dispute was over one Christian stealing land, somehow cheating another Christian out of land. I don't know any of us here who would say that's a trivial thing, especially if you understand how valuable land was back in this time when this letter was written. Yet, the Apostle Paul, through the inspired Word of God, says, this is trivial And this trivial case has led them to shame and to defeat. And I wonder, do we value the things that the world values? If we were put in this situation, would we look any different than the Corinthian church? If we encountered temptation that was just too good to pass up, would we seize that opportunity? 
Would we invite shame? Would we invite defeat in order to just gain one little item? Or if we lost that item, would we be willing to invite shame and to invite defeat in order to try to get back that one little item that Paul says is trivial? It's it's a challenge of our own heart because we do live in this world system and we like shiny things. And if it's not a shiny thing, then we, we like our rights. We don't want people trampling on our rights. We want to fight for those. But Paul says it is trivial. We see one man in this con- in the context of this passage who loved things so much he was willing to steal them. And the other man loved his things so much he was willing to fight to get it back. Both men loved their things more than their witness for God. More than their calling to make disciples. Now, there's a chance that some of us in this room will go through our lives and another Christian will never steal our cell phone or another church member will never uh, steal our car or, or think, things like this. But these are the types of things we're talking about on the surface of this letter. Possessions being taken from us. But there is a good chance a very good chance that none of us will go through our Christian life living and serving in a church family in a community of Christ and not have our feelings hurt. Not feel like somebody just wronged us with what they said. Or maybe they didn't like our idea. And deep down inside, you feel like you've been cheated. You feel like you've been wronged. And so it's not a a dispute worthy of going to the world's court systems and fighting it out and saying, this is what I want and you've taken it from me or this is mine and you have cheated me of it. But we'll take them to court in our mind, in our heart. We'll put them in a prison. We'll say they are wrong and we'll harm the relationship. Or we'll rally for support from our friends and share with them, can you believe what so-and-so said to me or did to me? And we'll want them to side with us and justify us and say, yes, you have been wrong. Yes, you have been cheated. In essence, you are walking the same path the Corinthian church walked. You are valuing something more than your calling to be God's witness. The church is called to witness to the unrighteous world. And this calling means you do not highly value present day property or feelings or rights or a personal sense of justice. And by doing this, you prevent the church's defeat in the world. So Paul continues this argument in regards to how we prevent this defeat in our own lives. Because if a brother or sister does wrong you or cheat you and you go to them and you confront them in a loving manner and yet they continue to refuse to repent. They continue to refuse to own their sin and make things right. What, what, what is it that we are to do? And so we see this in our third point, the Christ of the church. The Christ of the church. Christ is the key. The Christ of the church. And we're going to move now to verses 7 through 11. And we see here in these verses, I'll read them in just a second. We prevent forfeiting our calling as a witness. We prevent defeat 
by allowing ourselves to be wronged or cheated. Verse 7. The very fact that you have been, that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Now here we go. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul is telling the Corinthian church and he's telling us today, imitate Christ. Imitate our suffering Savior who allowed himself to be wronged, who allowed himself to be cheated by the unrighteous for the unrighteous. That's you and me. Imitate Christ. When we imitate Christ, are we not being a good witness to Christ? When we allow ourselves to be wronged and cheated, when we know we're in the right, are we not being a good witness to Jesus Christ who allowed himself to be bruised and beaten, to be tortured and hung on a cross for guilty sinners, for us? And Christ, by doing that, he conquered evil with good. And we, in a small sense, have that same opportunity to conquer evil, wrongdoing towards us, cheating towards us, whatever it might be, to conquer that with good. And we conquer that with good by allowing it, by not running to the court systems, crying out for righteousness or justice that the world has to offer, but instead following in Jesus' footsteps. What did my Dallas sister, our Dallas sister, do? when we finally discovered who, in fact, stole her cell phone. She chose to imitate Christ. She chose to absorb the wrong. She chose to allow herself to be cheated of her phone. By doing that, she conquered evil with good. She imitated Christ. I need to make something clear in this passage. We're talking about stuff, or in Amharic, it's ikka. Everything is ikka. We're talking about stuff or things. We're not talking about one person harming another person, okay? The passage is not dealing with this. If one person, whether Christian or not a Christian, is harming another person physically, emotionally, sexually, whatever it might be, that is worthy of the police's help. That's worthy of the court system. So please know that. And when I say allow yourself to be wrong, that doesn't mean you don't confront your sister, or your brother. That doesn't mean you don't go to the elders or some Christian that you respect, that you know has a pure heart for God. You do. But your motives are for reconciliation. Your motives are for restoration. Your motives are for repentance. It's not for the return of your stuff. That might or might not happen. So those are some things that I think are important in talking about this passage that we're looking at today. So what is Paul basing his whole argument on thus far? Well, we saw in the first six verses, he's basing his argument on a work of God, a work of God. And we see that same theme carry out in the rest of this passage. So Paul is basing his exhortation to the Corinthian church to bear suffering to not retaliate on two works of God. We're going to see in the last three verses here. The first is 
you will inherit the kingdom of God. Christians, you will inherit the kingdom of God. So why are you fighting over the stuff now? All things will be yours. The second thing is, you have been saved by God. You have been cleansed, adopted. You are, you are a child of God. You belong to Him. Let Him fight for you. Let Him be the one that shows justice. Let Him be the judge. So let's read now these points in verses 9 and following. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A couple points. In verse 9, the NIV uses the word wrongdoers. The ESV uses the word unrighteous. We know he's talking about unrighteous, the unbelievers. I mean, it's the same word that Paul uses in verse 1 for ungodly or unrighteous. Paul is not trying to create for us with this list of sins, a test for how to know whether someone's a Christian or not a Christian. By the NIV using the word wrongdoers, we get a sense of what Paul is doing. His point is, look around. Look at what you're struggling with. You look like the world. The world who will not inherit the kingdom of God, that's who you look like. And we see some of these sins that he lists, they've actually struggled with. Sexual immorality is listed in the the very prior uh, chapter, chapter 5. What Paul is saying, he's, he's saying, church, wake up. Be the church. You will inherit the kingdom of God. Live like it. You have a precious future awaiting you. You've received this precious gift. All that God has has to give you, He will give you. He has given you and you will live out. Be the church. Look different than the world. Wake up. And then again in verse 11, we see this past work of God where he's just trying to remind them, you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You are God's. Entrust yourself to him. Live for him. Don't live like the world. Don't fight over what the world fights over. Don't value what the world values. God values you. And now live for him. The church has been saved by God to inherit his kingdom. And His kingdom will come in its fullest form one day. And we will be there, those who have trusted in Christ. Therefore, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ now by suffering loss over the things that the world holds in such high regard. And by doing this, we too will prevail over evil with good. So what do we do if we find ourselves in this situation How do we handle disputes and clashes between Christians? We cling to the God-given capacity, calling, and Christ of the church. Cling to the God-given calling, capacity, calling, and Christ of the church. We cling to the God-given capacity by seeking reconciliation within 
the church. We cling to the God-given calling of the church by valuing our witness, God's character, Christ's finished work, over things or rights. And we cling to the Christ of the church by choosing to suffer loss, looking, looking for that kingdom to come. Instead of our heads being down, pull your eyes up and look for the kingdom to come and live for the kingdom to come. So one practice I want us all to implement, it could be big or small, in order to train our hearts to love our witness, to love Christians, to love the kingdom to come more than our present day stuff. I want all of us to prayerfully consider something that is highly valuable, some possession that you love, and I want you to freely give it away to another Christian. And by doing that, you are training your heart and you're telling yourself and you're telling your world, the world, and you're telling this Christian, I love you. I love God's children. I love my calling more than my stuff. And this stuff grips our heart, does it not? So I don't expect this to be easy for any of us, but I do expect us to take steps forward in this manner so that we might live out how Paul has called us to live. So church, based on God's past and future work, we are capable of wisely handling Christian disputes internally and even choosing to unfairly suffer personal loss like Christ in order to be a good witness to the unrighteous world. Let's pray. Our great God, we do come to you only by Christ. He is our everything. May we not forget that. Please show us in our hearts what might be crowding out our love for the Lord and for His people. Help us, Lord, to live our lives now as your witnesses. To live our lives now knowing that we will inherit your kingdom. What more could we ask for? Pray that you would give us grace and strength as we are tempted, as we might fall into the trap of fighting in order to get something back. But may that not be us. May that not be us as individual Christians in our workplaces or our homes. But Lord, may that not be us here at City Church Garland as well. We pray for your help and your grace. And we thank you for your works, past, present, and future, by which we are entirely dependent. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.